Welcome to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you are. We have such a great salvation in Jesus Christ. Today, we'll see how the author of Hebrews warns us to give salvation the most earnest attention so we don't lose sight of Jesus and drift away. part one of Cheryl's message titled, So Great a Salvation. So neglect is a terrible, terrible thing. And we all know that there's like a wide range of effects that come from neglect. My basil plants in my backyard give testimony to what neglect will do. You just leave them alone for a couple of days and don't water them and all the leaves turn black and fall off and oh, it, it, they're, they turn ugly. A neglected house. How many of you have seen like a neglected house, maybe on Fixer Upper or one of those programs? Uh, they become infested with rodents and termites and insect and dust and decay and pipes burst and fall apart, mold takes over, and the house becomes uninhabitable. A garden that is neglected becomes ugly and unenjoyable. A relationship that is neglected, a a friendship, will become cold and unfulfilling and there will be so many misunderstandings and the wedge between the friends will grow and grow. Neglect of the body. Little aches become chronic aches. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Skin cancers grow and what happens is they appear above and they grow below. Uh, Your skin, if you neglect your skin, it becomes dry and drawn and even flaky. You neglect your body with food and the body goes into starvation mode and you know, the cheeks pull inward and everything begins to shrivel. When you neglect um, walking or exercise, you neglect your body, your muscles begin to atrophy. Uh, I know that there's so many things that I could do in my youth that I just can't do anymore. And obviously I have neglected those muscles. A child that's neglected will have disassociative depression, despondency, and even brain damage just from neglect. Well, what's at the heart of neglect? Why do we neglect? Well, we get other priorities, things that are simply more important. When I get into a sewing project and I get these inspirations for sewing projects, I neglect my body and I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh my goodness, how long is it since I've washed my hair? How long is it since I've, you know, put moisturizers on or done anything or even eaten? I just get so into that project because that just takes the forefront of everything I'm doing. 
Sometimes we neglect because there's just things that we'd rather do, like sleep, like watch television, than give earnest heed. Things like comfort and pleasure, making money, activities take precedence over, over whatever the thing that we're neglecting is. Sometimes it's a lack of passion. The person or thing that is suffering the neglect is simply not in my consideration. It's, I just don't care about it anymore. I, I've just lost the heart for it. The, you know, what they say is out of sight, out of mind. I have no desire or effort to put an investment of my time or my energy into it. Sometimes it's busyness. I'm so busy doing other things that the neglect is really unnoticed. I, I don't mean to neglect. You ever have that? You're just so busy. You didn't mean to neglect that person or that thing. It, it's just, you're so busy. Years ago, I remember just being a young mom. Um, I had had Kelsey, my third child, and I was so, so tired. And she would wake up three to four times during the night. And I had just gotten to this point of exhaustion. And she was three months old. And I thought it was about five o'clock in the evening. I needed to do dinner and all sorts of other things. But I thought if I could just get a 15 minute nap, I know I would feel so much better. So I put her in the electric swing. You know, when I would, when I first had my first children, you had to crank them. You would crank them and, you know, if they were asleep and you start cranking, it would wake them up. I don't know how many of you remember those crank, those cranky swings that made cranky babies. But I, with this child, I had the battery operated one. Oh my goodness, they were wonderful. So I put Kelsey in the battery operated swing. I laid down and the next thing I knew, the sun was rising. I had slept all the way till 6.30 in the morning. Nobody had come in, nobody had interrupted it. And nobody had pulled Kelsey out of the swing. And I look over and there she is still going back and forth in the swing. And her little feet are like bluish, almost purple. I'm like, oh my goodness. I didn't neglect her on purpose. I would never, ever neglect my baby. But I was so wrung out, so tired that I accidentally neglected my baby. Sometimes we've got so many other what seem important things pressing in on us that we just don't have time for the upkeep. Neglect is so pervasive and we all know what it's like to neglect something or find something we've neglected. Brian goes surfing and he does the baptisms and I don't know why because he's been told differently. Do not leave the wet towels in the garage. Maybe you have husbands like this, that you have given similar instructions. Do not leave the wet towels in the garage. But he does. And we'll be all out of beach towels. And I have to go on this hunt in the garage. And some of them, what has happened to them is just ugly. You know, they'll, they'll have mold spots on them or holes in them, just like where they're worn through from the neglect. And well, it finally came to a head. I was pulling some things out of the washing machine. And then I was folding the whites, you know, the whites that you do separate from everything else. And as I was folding one of his white t-shirt, I thought, what are all these little black polka dots on it? What are all these spots? 
And I realized this t-shirt might be clean, but it is totally ruined because somehow it went on the wet beach towel pile in the garage. And right there, I was thinking, this is the price you pay for neglect. But we've all had things like this, maybe a house plant, maybe a friendship, as I said earlier. Maybe it's something that you haven't used in years, like a bread maker, and you get out and you're like, wow, this thing's got a lot of, uh, a lot of dust on it or problems with it. We've either been the recipients of neglect or we've been the neglector. Neither is pleasant. The author of Hebrews speaks of the danger of neglecting so great a salvation. And he said one of the first issues is that we drift away. We lose sight of how great our salvation is. We just forget because it's not on our radar. We're not thinking about it. And so we forget what a great saving we have received, how great the sacrifice for our salvation was, how great the Savior is who procured that salvation to us, and the great success that our Savior procured for us on the cross. When we neglect so great a salvation, we fail to give the most earnest heed. We do not give it priority, preeminence, or passion. And the consequences are much worse than the t-shirt that Brian left in the garage. And even much worse, as the author of Hebrews says, than what the Israelites suffered who neglected God's law. It will result as a Christian in defeat, oppression, exile, loss, a sense of separation from God. How can we as believers avoid the pervasive danger of neglect? How do we keep from neglecting our great salvation? Well, the author says to us, we must give heed. Heed, we must give attention. We must give allegiance to our salvation. So how do we take heed to it? We must consider it. We must keep an awareness of it, keep it in our sights. You see, you drift away. All of us have had that experience of going out in the ocean, not realizing that the tide is so strong and losing, you know, our beach party, the people that we are with, losing sight of our towel, our possessions. I don't know about you, but I always panic. I come out of the ocean. I'm like, somebody stole my beach towel and somebody changed the number on the lifeguard tower. These people are so cruel not realizing that the problem's with me. I have drifted. But if I can keep it in my sights, put a marker on the beach and say, okay, I'm at Lifeguard Tower 17. I do not want to forget this. Lifeguard 17. And I make Lifeguard 17 my marker. So I know whether I'm drifting or not. That's how you give heed. And you keep checking yourself. Every wave that you dive under or jump over or float in on, or whatever you do, ride, you keep going back and saying, where am I in relationship to lifeguard number 17? So when we give heed, we say, where am I in relationship to the lifeguard salvation that I've received? That salvation that has saved me, that salvation that has brought me out of the depth of danger, 
Where am I in relationship to that? But also part of it is to realize, to reckon with its greatness, its grace and its glory. The author doesn't say we have received salvation. He says we have received so great a salvation, not just a salvation, not just a great salvation, but so great a salvation because it's more than great. It's more than amazing. It's more than undeserved. It's a great, but it's so great. Now, Hebrews chapter two supplies us with four reasons our salvation is so great. Firstly, again, remember, it's so great. This Greek word is telekutos, and it, it has to do with like an all-encompassing greatness. It's not just great in one area. It, it speaks of this complex greatness. So it's great in stature. It's great in bulk. It's great in size. It's great in benefit. It's great in age. It is just great in every arena that great can be good. That's how great our salvation is. Our salvation surpasses any lesser deliverance. It is the great salvation. It is the deliverance that matters most. Now, we've all had little salvations. I remember one time stepping too close to the edge of the Grand Canyon and my feet giving way and all of a sudden feeling this hand just grab me and pulling me back. And it was my father. Another time it was interesting, I was at this retreat and they were asking how many people choked and their parent or a guardian or someone older came and lifted their left hand up. And first of all, she asked how many have choked before? And I raised my hand. She said, how many, you know, your guardian or parent lifted your left hand? And I was like, no, that didn't happen to me. So I was waiting to raise my hand again. And I remember my brother was dropping junior mints into my mouth in the back seat of the car. I was four years old. I still remember. And he dropped one after another, and one stuck in my throat, and I started choking. My dad pulled over the car, and nobody told him about just lifting the left hand. No, he grabbed me by the ankles and shook me up and down till that little junior mint popped out. But that was a salvation. Definitely. I would have died had my father not pulled over the car and acted so quickly and so decisively to remove that junior mint. So we've all experienced little salvations, but this is the most important. This is the great salvation. This is the one that counts, and and this is the greatest of salvations. This is eternal salvation. And it is great because of what we've been delivered from. Secondly, because of the great cost. Thirdly, because of the way It was accomplished. Fourthly, because our Savior is so great. And fifthly, because of the greatness of what is ours because of this salvation. As believers, we need to continually realize how great our salvation is. Contemplating it, appreciating it, realigning ourselves with it, giving them more earnest heed or investing our attention and our time into this salvation. Now, the devil wants to numb us to so great a salvation so that we will drift away, so we will lose sight of it, so other things will become more important 
and we will drift putting distance between ourselves and the greatness. You know, when something gets to be a distance, you no longer recognize how, how big it is. There are, um, right out here at the El Toro base, there are the, uh, what used to be the blimp holders during World War II. And from a distance, they don't look that great. They look, you know, from the sky, they don't look that big. But oh my goodness, if you go to the district mall, uh, shopping center and you walk anywhere near them, you are going to say, wow, these things are huge. They're so big. So the closer we get to our salvation, we're going to look at it and go, this is huge. This is so big. And, and maybe when you first got saved, you're like, this is huge. But the longer you walk with the Lord and things come in and you begin to bring things back into your life and you begin to neglect it and you put that distance, it loses in your heart and mind the greatness. But it is so great. I think about, and maybe you do too, Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. I think about how she had her eyes on Oz. And she was, of course, with the Tin Man and the Scarecrow. This, of course, is a true story. Not. But she's with the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion. And they see Oz in the different, a distance. And the Wicked Witch so desperately doesn't want her to reach Oz. Because she knows if Dorothy reaches Oz, she'll have the answer. She'll have the strength. And forever she will keep those ruby red slippers. So what does the Wicked Witch of the West do? She sends out those demonic monkeys with wings. And they sow the sleeping powder in the fields. Remember that part? If not, watch it as a spiritual allegory. Anyway, they, they sow the sleeping powder in the fields. Okay, just real quick. How many of you remember when you could only watch it once a year? Dorothy the Wizard of Oz. It would come out once a year. And it was like, I'm sorry. Everything else doesn't matter. Dorothy is going to be on television. And we'd all sit there and just, you know, the whole family would gather around to watch Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. But they sow this sleeping powder in the field because they know as long as they're awake and they're alert and their eyes are on us, they're going to be successful and they're going to be out of the wicked witch of the West's grasp. So they sow the sleeping powder. And as they're going towards the field, they're getting more and more tired and they just want to rest. So first they're just kind of you know, going slower and then they're kind of standing and then they're taking one step and then they're beginning just to lay down and they all say at a different point, if I just can just get a little sleep. Next thing you know, they're asleep in the field and what happens? Maybe you remember. They come down those those evil, wicked, winged monkeys and they, they pick them off one by one and they take them to the witch's lair and they imprison them. And I think about, this is what the devil's plan is. He wants to take us away from such a great salvation. You see, our salvation is great because it has saved us from the prison house and the power of the devil. Verse 14 of chapter 2 says that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. That's what our salvation has done. It has delivered us from the power of the devil. The devil has no claim and no power against us. 
Now let's think about the devil for a moment and just for a moment, because I don't want to give him too much time. But Proverbs 12, 10 says the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. The devil does not have a mercy button in it, on his whole entire staff. There is no mercy. As tender as he can get, as merciful as he can get, it's still cruel. He is the ultimate narcissist. We're told in Isaiah that he said, I will make myself like the most high God. He wants worship and no amount of worship is enough for the devil. He said to the Lord, Jesus in the temptation, bow down and worship me. And the literal rendering of that in Greek is bow down just once and worship me. Just one time. He's so desperate that even though he has the worship of so many people of this world, it's still not enough. Jesus actually tells us in John 8, 44, that he is a liar and a murderer. In Luke 13, 16, he tells us that he's a cruel taskmaster. He had bound a woman in pain and bent over 18 years. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, that he's a devouring lion. He's going around just looking for somebody that he can devour. And in John 10, 10, Jesus tells us that he's a thief and a robber and a destroyer. But we are saved from the devil. He is no longer the master of our life. But we are also saved from death. This is all what we're saved from. We are saved from death. Now, men describe death as separation of the spirit from the body. But the Bible describes death a separation of the spirit from God. When Adam and Eve sinned and ate of the forbidden tree, immediately their spirits were separated from God's spirits. There was no more walking in the garden. There was no more fellowship. But the death that the Bible is speaking about, besides a physical death, is an eternal separation from God. Everything that is God, love, peace, joy, beauty, kindness, truth, all the attributes of God, light, innocence, purity, all of these are lost forever. When you take God, who is love, out of the picture, you lose love. We are saved from hell. We are saved from that place of eternal separation from God. We are saved from damnation. We are saved from the condemnation that was justly ours because of all our sin. We were rebels from God and we had received the death penalty. And we deserve to be punished and destroyed for our opposition to God. But we have been saved from that condemnation. As it says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been saved from the fear of death, verse 15, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We are no longer hiding from life, trying to escape death. In fact, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, death has been transformed into a transport, a transport, a bus, if you will, a train, an airplane to glory, perfection, beauty, community, God's presence, and life itself. Fear has been reduced to a nagging choice and not a constant. We are also saved from aimless, vain, purposeless, 
and meaningless lives on earth. You see, we were subject to bondage. We were addicted to sin. We were cursed and condemned to this insufferable emptiness where nothing that we did mattered. I'm going to do the dishes and tomorrow there will be more dishes. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three describes it like this. And you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we had conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath, just as others. It is so important that we stay attentive and aware of our great salvation because we have an enemy who wants to distract and numb us from all that we have in Jesus. Satan wants to pull us away so that we will lose sight of our great salvation and the forgiveness and power that it provides. Satan wants to destroy our faith and he'll try to do this by making other things more important. But as we keep our eyes on the Lord and remember his word, We will stay close to Him and remember and live out the greatness of our salvation. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll look at Jesus, our ultimate salvation, as we continue our series, Our Great Faith, in the book of Hebrews with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. Again, for more information, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.